Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Today on the Up to Sport Football Podcast, I'm joined by Spanish football expert Phil Kittromelides and journalist Michael Bailey from The Athletic. This week, we discuss the controversial referee in the Merseyside derby, whether Mikel Arteta has made the right choice in the keeper department, and Phil gets to big up Anton Griezmann again. Hello and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Phil Kittromelides. Phil, 12 episodes in, and this will yes. be the first time we're not going to be talking about Ange Postacoglu, as only because they're playing tonight against Fulham. How do you feel about that? That's what you think, Mark. But trust me, <laughs> I'm going to find a way to get him in. We're going to have a good old Ange chat, obviously, uh, because the uh, the mighty Spurs are going to win tonight and go uh, two points clear at the top of the table. Well, we've already talked about him, haven't we? So there you go. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, Phil, we're also joined today by Michael Bailey, who was a journalist at The Athletic and last week ranked all 20 Premier League stadiums in an article. I'm sure social media was in full agreement with you. Michael, must have been, must have been absolutely <laughs> amazing. Everyone must have been, yeah, he's spot on there. Uh, well, first of all, great to be here. Thanks, guys. Uh, I mean, I'm not even sure I agreed with the rankings we came up with in the end because we, we tried to make it as thorough and involving as many different people and, and aspects as possible. And when we totaled up the scores and I was looking at those and thinking, Brentford up there, really? Um, so, uh, but, so, and then uh, ultimately, I think we had more than 500 comments on the piece on The Athletic and uh, I, I I made sure I stayed clear of most of them because I didn't want to get too much stick for it. But um, it's all good value, and um, oh, I mean, there's some there's some wonderful places to come and watch football. So it was nice to flag flag up a few of those. What was number one? Sorry, I didn't see the piece. Oh, is that a spoiler? Uh, it was it was Spurs. It of course, was, uh, it was. Spurs. There we go. Of, of course, who, yeah. Do you know who manages Spurs? It's this Australian <laughs> guy called oh, Ange you know So I'm, yeah. I, I'm genuinely disappointed if we're not speaking about Ange because I, I I love him. <laughs> I think he's brilliant, and uh, I did when he was at Spurs as well. So you know, I'm enjoying watching him flourish. Uh, so obviously, all the listeners out there, make sure you go to um, Michael's uh, article on the stadium. Um, judging and where where your stadium will rank in the Premier League and make sure you do give him lots of stick if you're not happy with these results because um, that's what it's about, right? We need to have the stick as well, yeah. um, not just all the good stuff. Um, let's start today with the sad news of Bobby Charlton's passing. He was died at the age of 86. Uh, he was a World Cup winner and a Manchester United legend. But actually, I'll go further and say he was a global legend. He was, a, he was known throughout the whole of the world. Michael, can you give us a bit of a context to our Australian audiences on just how big of a legend, um, not just for Manchester United fans, not just in England, but all over the world that Sir Bobby Charlton was? Yeah, I think some of the statements after the, the news of his death broke I think it probably summed it up. We had um, Pep Guardiola talking about um, Bobby Charlton being one of the pillars of English football and, and summing up so much of what English football uh, is and how it got to be this just wonderful sport of, of such great Im- importance to this country, but you know, watched all around the world. You also had Pele, who described previously 
um, Bobby Charlton as the spirit of football. And I think that encapsulated so much of him in terms of what he was as a person, but also then his phenomenal achievements on the pitch. I mean, I'm 42 years old, so I know who Bobby Charlton is. You know, I've known his name, but it's almost taken this weekend for me to just, uh, rather than take for granted, he was a great player, just have a little look and just sort of refresh, I suppose, and, and just reaffirm so much of what he did that was incredible. When, when you when you break it down, uh, he won the European Cup with Manchester United. He won the World Cup with England. So right there, you've got um, just emphasising his, his importance across the whole of the English game by being one of the World Cup winners from 1966. Um, Manchester United, it was, you know, he was their leading goal scorer until Wayne Rooney overtook him recently. He was their all-time appearance maker until Ryan Giggs overtook him recently. Um, he made over 600 appearances. He um, won United's first European Cup. But at the very start of, of his sort of professional career, he also survived the Munich air disaster. He was one of the key um, components of rebuilding an entire club that at that point, there were suggestions the club may have to fold because 23 people died um, in that, including eight of his teammates the club was on the floor and it had to be rebuilt. And so not only did Bobby Charlton become um, hugely important in terms of the success they had, but he basically was one of those who rebuilt that club to where it could flourish. So I think uh, what Manchester United would be without Bobby Charlton is, is one question. And as I said, you then factor in the fact that for England, he was um, a key key player in one of the greatest sporting achievements this country has seen in any sport. Uh, I think that probably uh, only just does it justice, really. And the other thing I would say is World Cup winner, uh, European Cup winner. He also won the Ballon d'Or in 1966. There are only nine players in world football that have won those three honours. And Lionel Messi only just joined that group um, after winning the World Cup in Qatar. So I think that says it all, really. Oh, that was amazing. Uh, you know what? When you were talking about Sir Bobby Charlton and about Manchester United and about him being at the forefront of that rebuild and, and the club on its knees, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Um, I got a cold shiver down my spine because you just think about the magnitude of Manchester United as we see it today. People, I think, certainly from the outside, not I'm sure Manchester United fans know all about it and know very much down to the core how big a person and, and big a part that Sir Bobby uh, Charlton had played in the club. So uh, all I can take from it, I, I, I don't, I don't think I ever got the experience to meet him. But everybody, whoever spoke about him, even the tributes that are all flowing in there, everybody talks about the man himself and how an amazing person he was, and the influence he had on so many people. Whether it was David Beckham, whether it was Wayne Rooney, there were so many people who have come out and talked about that influence. And I don't think you can talk about him without, as Michael said, mentioning the. The Munich air disaster because that just conditions everything and just imagine the mental impact that has on a person of being in a plane crash that kills so many people that decimates your team you lose teammates you lose friends and they're gone and to build yourself back up from that and to build the team back up from that is just extraordinary at a time when obviously nobody was talking about mental health nobody was giving that kind of support he got on with it with just the quiet grace and humility that came to characterize him. And I think that is a fundamental part of who Bobby Charlton was and helps us to understand uh, what he went on and, and to became. And it just puts into context everything that he went on to achieve, starting 
from there. That's where he had to start and where he ended up was right on the summit. So just, just an incredible. And, and Gary Lineker tweeted saying, um, England's greatest ever player, the best ever Englishman to play football. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. I obviously never saw him play uh, live. I'm, um, I'm actually reeling from the fact that, Michael, you said you're 42. You look really good for 42. But obviously, now that we didn't see him play live, but you go back and you watch him play and it doesn't like he doesn't seem like too dated like his style he actually seems like he could have I don't know if he could have fitted in nowadays to play but he was clearly clearly an exceptional player when you go back and you watch the old footage so yeah just a you know the word legend genuinely gets used too much I think in, in, in football but probably for Bobby Charlton it won't get used enough absolutely a humble giant in terms of how he carried himself and I think that that is showing in the warmth of all the tributes. But you're right, Phil. I mean, the way the way he could strike a ball at watching these goals he scored. I don't know how you'd have felt facing him up, but I mean, they, they you know they, these were rifles. He could such a true connection with what these massive balls of leather. I don't, I, I don't think I'd have fancied being a goalkeeper coming up against Bobby Charlton. Well, absolutely not. Um, I mean, there's absolutely amazing legends of the game, and he's certainly right up there with being one of the greatest ever um, and such an incredible influence on the game itself, as well as Manchester United. Um, like I said, may he rest in peace, an absolute legend. Unfortunately, we've lost him to the game. Um, let's move on to the Merseyside derby. And, of course, there's always controversy, or generally there's always controversy in a Merseyside derby. Uh, I think the scoreline in the end, Liverpool winning 2-0, you kind of think, ah, oh, it was, you know, it was a reasonably comfortable affair for Liverpool. But Michael, you covered it for the Athletic. Um, and first and foremost, we've got to talk about the refereeing decision. And then the referees are really pretty much, well, bang in the spotlight this season. Uh, it's been a huge error um, the other week. And now we're talking about, it's a pretty big error as well, right, Michael? Not giving Kanate a second yellow. That was clear. It was strange watching it unfold in real time because there was a pause before Craig Pawson booked uh, um, uh, booked Ashley Young for the second time. And you're like, oh, will he give him the leniency benefit of the doubt? Oh, oh no, okay, and fair enough. And then with Kanate's second yellow, you sort of sat there and I, I just remember shaking my head going, he's not going to book him. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, you know, but surely he will though. Oh no, oh, no, he's not going to book him. And you could just sense it. And then you could see how enraged Sean Dyche was getting a, about it. And actually, post-match, I thought you could tell he was still pretty riled. It was There was a deep emotion in him when you kind of probably want your head coach to be a, a bit more a bit more under control. It was simmering and he was losing his words a little. I mean, there, there was, there's one element of that second yellow where it, it looks like it's it's possibly a little soft in real time. And if you sort of avoid the cynical foot, there's not a massive amount of contact and you think, okay, maybe there's just enough there that sowed enough doubt in Craig Pawson's mind to not give it. But having set the bar previously, and then you see Kanji's second yellow for Manchester City and all those things. I mean, it is a second yellow. I guess it's just an element of the incident where I can kind of understand maybe why the referee just thought it wasn't necessarily... Maybe that um, I can't remember who it was who went down, but maybe they they'd made um, they'd made too much of it. But I mean, it, uh, maybe at that point he should be getting help from his from his other officials because uh, quite clearly in the context of the game, I think and the decisions he'd made earlier, he he had to send Kanate off. Uh, some of the words that Sean Dice used to uh, describe the decision: ridiculous, baffling, and impossible. Uh, he was obviously clearly uh, furious. I agree with everything you said, Michael. I think that there is. 
just about enough element of doubt in real time for the referee to think maybe it's not a hugely physical challenge. There isn't that much contact, contact, but it, it, it was cynical and, it, and it, you know, it probably should have been a yellow card. But I was I was rewatching this game because I uh, didn't watch it live. So I watched it afterwards and I obviously heard all about it. And when I see the, the incident, I was thinking, oh, right, OK. Yes, it probably should be a yellow card, but then I can maybe see why the referee didn't feel like it. it's not like a cynical hack. Uh, he hasn't gone in two footed. He hasn't kicked him. It's a slight tug, light, lightest of tugs, and, and and he doesn't think it's a it's a it's a yellow card. It conditions the game almost certainly, and um and that's why I think Sean Dice is is, is so angry because it really would have leveled things up in a game that was. Liverpool were better. I think they were better when they had uh, 11 against 11. They were obviously better 11 against 10. But it wasn't that Liverpool were completely steamrolling uh, Everton. They had more more of the ball. They were looking the more likely to score. But it wasn't as if Everton were really, really suffering. So, you know, that, that they're sending off conditioned it and they're not levelling... Not leveling things up with uh, with the red card for uh, for Konate obviously uh, made things even harder for uh, for Everton, which is why Sean Dice was absolutely furious. I think rightly so as well because I, look, I think I think you guys have been a little bit sent, uh, fence sitting. I think a little bit because I think it's a clear yellow card. Because only because of the he knew exactly what he was doing. He was slowing the play down. Everton were on the break. It is a professional foul. It has to be a yellow card, in my opinion. It is, it is, it is. It's just not like a vicious one. It's, no, it's just a very not. light contact. It's the lightest contact. So this is why the referee is thinking, uh, maybe I can get away with not booking him because it isn't an overtly violent action. But you're right, it's cynical and it is probably a yellow card, yeah. So you think he's influenced, in his own mind, the referee. There's a, there's a pan. I actually think there's a genuine chance that he's influenced by already having sent one player off. Do I want to send another one off? Well, then, if he's thinking about that, then he probably would have thought maybe I should level things up. No, I mean, if you're thinking well, in I'm one way, yes. one off, then yeah, I, I mean, could send this guy off. I could yeah. send this guy off. So, yeah. yeah, fair call. Yeah, you could. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was. It was a, uh, a questionable refereeing performance. I thought, you know, my boy Costas uh, Timikas should definitely have uh, have been uh, booked a few times actually because he was uh, he was fouling left, right, and centre. But uh, yeah, you know, it, 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 sh- shall we talk about the game? Because obviously, you know, we talked about the referee, but let, let, let's talk about the game because um, there was there was there was lots of stuff to talk about, wasn't there, Michael? It was a cracking. Oh, no, hang on, it wasn't. It was. It was. A, it was an interesting <laughs> game. It was not yeah. a particularly good game. In fact, yeah. I thought it was pretty drab. To, for for you, you sort of tuned in for this big derby, and I know it was a a Saturday lunchtime just after the international break, so maybe everyone was still a bit half asleep. But it did feel very half asleep for a derby. I was like, come on! And um, I thought I thought Liverpool were really poor. If I'm honest, I, they, they 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 didn't seem to. Um, get the ball into the right areas. I thought Everton were really compact and that there just wasn't any room for uh, uh, Liverpool were trying to go around the outside a lot and they, they couldn't kind of really find that find through balls to make hay sort of into central areas. So they were struggling with that. Thought um I thought Mo Salah looked sort of off it as well. Which I mean a lot of these guys have travelled around a bit so you can kind of understand that to a degree. Um but I think also Liverpool probably knew in the back of their minds that they they could they would find a way eventually, and it felt like that kind of a performance that it was kind of an efficiency there, and I think that ultimately proved right in the second half as well. But for Everton and and, and Sean Dice, there must be some a, a lot of positives in terms of going to Anfield, defensively looking impressive, 
um, even though their overall play maybe wasn't the best, but in midfield as well, they were they were very strong. Um, Liverpool struggled to break them down for large parts of the, of, the, of that game. Um, so th- there's got to be, I would think, Michael, having watched that game, you'd be thinking for Sean Dice, there's a lot of positives he'd be walking away from that game with. Yeah, definitely. I don't. I don't think Everton are in too bad. Uh, I think they've they, they're probably um, lower down the table than they should be based on on what they're doing on the actual pitch. I, I think that they're they've 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 been reasonably solid, and actually these games are not so much of their issues. I think they that Sean Dyche knows how to organise the team. They're, they're not going to struggle to be up for a game at Anfield against Liverpool, um, and so there's definitely. I, I wouldn't say there was anything there that would uh, derail them. If anything, they can, as you say, they can take a lot of encouragement for how well they defended, what, how they kept Liverpool in check for a lot of it. And they can actually say, you know what, that didn't help us. <laughs> so um, in terms of refereeing decisions, so there, there's a lot there for them to work on, but it, it's that it's trying to deliver those kind of performances and obviously take a few chances when they're playing teams from lower down the table, especially at Goodison Park. Um, uh, so I think they, Sure. Once Sean Dyche has got over the the disappointment and his own emotions, I think um, they'll they'll feel that there's plenty to work off off the back of that. I think. I agree with Michael in that it was it was a flat game and it was surprisingly flat. And obviously, the lunchtime kickoff um, in the UK wasn't wasn't lunchtime in Australia. It was a good kickoff time in Australia, actually, fantastic <laughs> kickoff time. But um, it was flat. It was after an international break, and I just got me thinking about the Merseyside derby. <sighs> I wouldn't have tuned into this game if I didn't know that we were going to watch. I'm going to talk about it on the on, on podcast on Monday. I knew we were going to talk about it. It's like, right, I've got to watch this game. I've got to sit down and watch it. But otherwise, it is not a derby that grabs me and forces me to sit and watch it. Because, yes, it's often quite intense. This one wasn't. It's often quite intense. There's lots of red cards. I think it's the fixture with the most red cards in Premier League history. There's lots of late goals as well. So it can be dramatic. But it doesn't feel like... a fixture that usually provides high quality entertainment it doesn't feel like a rivalry that is one that captivates you because it is so one-sided at the moment um it, it was just a little bit disappointing for me as a spectacle and this one was particularly disappointing because it was it was um uh, it was it was so flat, but it got me thinking a little bit like what the Madrid derby was. Obviously, I, I live and work in Spain and cover Spanish football. And for 14 years, for 14 years, Atletico Madrid did not beat Real Madrid. So that was an unbelievably one-sided derby. And then Atletico got their act together. In came Simeone and they started winning. It's a bit like Barcelona against Espanyol. Um, not quite as bad because Espanyol are in the second division now and Everton are not. But it does feel like it is so one-sided from a neutral perspective, from a global perspective, this isn't necessarily a fixture that everybody has to tune into around the world uh, because you kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the problem. Um, I think everything else is there, right? So the emotion, the history, everything about the Merseyside derby is in place. It's that one-sidedness. It's the difference levels in the two different teams. And that's, that's for me, the overriding problem. Everton, I kind of I think it's a derby. Forget about form. Anything can happen. Uh, actually, no, Everton's just played like they have been playing the rest of the season. So, but Everton are massive, Mark, aren't they? Like, you've absolutely. played there. You've played, it's a huge club, massive historic club, huge fan base, fantastic stadium. So they are a massive club, which maybe we don't realise outside of Liverpool just how big and just how many people in Liverpool support Everton. They are huge. It's just it doesn't... We don't see that in the derby. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about... Uh, Chelsea against Arsenal, not so much the game itself, but more about Mikel Arteta. 
Has he, which I think he has, I'm going to hold my hand up right now, I think he's backed himself in a corner. He's put all his eggs in one basket and he's pay, playing David Raya ahead of Aaron Ramsdale. For me, Michael, I think that's the wrong decision. So first things first, this was a proper derby and a great game. I really enjoyed this one. Um, I, I'm, um, yeah, there's something that really annoys me about this. It's not necessarily the, the Arteta's choice. Like if he looked at David Rea and thought, I'm getting him in, uh, he's going to be my number one at some point, then, then great. The issue I have is that when he made the change, he came up with some ludicrous story about it being, oh, well, no, I'm going to change the face of goalkeeping here. I'm going to bring in, a, I'm going to change my goalkeeper on the 60th minute because why can't you change a goalkeeper? You can change any other position on the pitch. It's great to have two and we'll, you know, pick and choose and there'll be this one, this one. None of that has happened. All he's done is drop Darren Ramsdale and then play David Rea and that's it. So yes, in that context, <laughs> um, I, I just don't understand why Mikel Arteta would say all that stuff publicly. I mean, I don't know if he said that to them both in private. Um, I'm guessing, I hope not. Well, because if he has, he hasn't done that. And the worst thing I think you can have is a manager who isn't then honest. Um, I, just, I just never, I, I was quite, you know, I was like, fair play, Mikel. If you really see that and you're going to bring Aaron Ramsdale in for this game and then you're going to play David Rare, then great. But actually all he's done is just kept David Rare in. He started making some, you know, errors and now he's getting scrutinised and his ball playing isn't um, proving as robust as it was supposed to because that was the scrutiny that Aaron Ramsdale was under. Um, at the end of last season. And so you're, you're right. He's now faced with a goalkeeper who's losing confidence and playing and another one who's been dropped and doesn't know when his next chance is going to come. And then also, if he does, how long is he going to be in for? And that seems like a ridiculous situation to have created when you've got two very good goalkeepers. <laughs> These are two really good goalkeepers at Premier League level, I, I think, in my opinion. So I don't really understand it. It's, uh, I mean, Mikel Arteta has done a, a lot of, brilliant things at Arsenal but uh, th this and, and obviously he's worked under Pep Guardiola so he'll have picked up a huge amount from that but I, I wonder if some of this is part of that overcomplication of a situation and creating something that just didn't need to be there it will be really interesting how this plays out certainly for the rest of this year and, and what happens from there uh, if only we had a uh, former Premier League goalkeeper on the podcast who could give us his uh, his take on this Mark tell us what do you think what why why, why is it such a mistake from Arteta um, well, it's only seemingly a mistake right now, right? Because of David Raya is struggling under the scrutiny, under the pressure. Look, you look at the first goal, uh, sorry, the second goal he considered against Chelsea. He just looked like someone who's completely out of sorts because he was so far out of position. I, I, I've watched it a number of times on the replay and I'm just thinking, where is he standing? He's like so badly out of position. I get it if he if you try to guess where the ball was going, you know, like sometimes you can, you can, you can sort of like think, right, he's going to whip this in. I'm going to be on my bike really quickly and I'm going to come out and take this cross. And I, I get that because I've done that before, but to be that far out of position, that's a confidence thing. Cause that's happened to me as well. When you, when you know you get caught out of position like that, you know that it's, it's about confidence and you're feeling like every little mistake that I may make right now is going to be in the spotlight and I'm going to be so much under pressure. And that's what's happening to him now. His strength, playing out with the ball at his feet, is actually becoming one of his weaknesses at the moment. And when you're that good with your feet, that's the that's like you you, you can't make mistakes there. And I know it's really mm -hmm. harsh because 
I, I'm of the opinion, if that's your bread and butter, that's why you have become such a good goalkeeper. One of the big reasons is that you can afford to make, you can only afford to make fewer mistakes than every other, than most other goalkeepers with the ball at their feet, because that's your strong point. That's your marketing uh, sales pitch, right? So I think um, he's massively down on confidence. And I think all round, I actually believe that Aaron Ramsdale is a better goalkeeper. And saying all that, Mikel Arteta obviously has a way that he wants to play, which we all know that. He believes that David Raya is the one that's going to take the club further forward. So he's put everything on David Raya. And I've been in that situation before. It doesn't matter what you do. The manager, is, in my opinion, has already made his mind up. And he can, he can say, he has to say what he has to say. And there's no doubt that he likes Aaron Ramsdale as a person and as a professional, but he's got to keep him on board for as long as he possibly can um, until such time as... Either he, either he leaves or if he needs him. And if it keeps going with David Raya unable to continue with handling the pressure and making more mistakes, he's going to need David, uh, Aaron Ramsdale sooner than probably he would have actually have hoped. So he's got to now use his managerial skills to keep them both on side. I think it's very interesting listening to, to your uh, expert analysis because obviously I was watching the game and yeah, okay, the second goal, I think it looks bad, but then I watched it back and I, th I didn't think it was that bad. And I, I was watching it on Spanish TV and maybe because he's a Spanish goalkeeper, he got a bit of a pass from the commentator saying, oh no, it was it, his position wasn't too bad. It, you know, that ball was going in anyway. It doesn't matter where he was. That ball would have gone in because of the way it was hit. Mark is shaking his head and I agree with Mark because Mark knows about these things and me and the Spanish commentators do, do not. But I didn't think it... I don't know. It didn't strike me as a catastrophic goalkeeping display from David Raya, which is how it's being billed. Um, I mean, he made that mistake when he passed the ball straight to Cole, Cole Palmer. He rectified really yep. good down. He's really good at diving down at the feet. He had Nicholas Jackson through on goal and he dived down really quickly as well and, and, and avoided... Uh, it didn't. It didn't feel that bad. Yeah, the distribution isn't the level that it should be that, that we've expect, come to expect from David Raya, but it didn't feel... As bad, Mark, and as gratuitous as a the mistake for Robert Sanchez for the first Chelsea goal, which for me felt really, really sort of unacceptable in terms of a goalkeeper. It was a bad mistake. Yeah, I mean, there's fine lines, right? Because Sanchez has made that mistake and got punished, and De Rea has made the similar mistake. Actually, if anything, he made a worse mistake in terms of the ball he yeah. played. Yeah, but got away with it because he rectified it. He made up for it, which was brilliant. The, the recovery was absolutely brilliant. No doubt about it at all. But I think it's more about, you know, when you've got two top-class goalkeepers like that, right, and you're talking about the controversial decision to change him in the first place, to say that he's going to rotate, rotate the goalkeepers, first and foremost, in my mm. experience and my opinion, that doesn't work. It only works for a very short period of time because you can't keep both happy. And you could find yourself in a position where, both are horrendously out of form because of the lack of confidence because neither knows who's playing. Neither knows who the number one is. As a goalkeeper, it's so specialized, right? People talk about it all the time. Goalkeepers are different, special, protected, whatever it is. We train by ourselves and everything else. It's all true, right? So you've got to deal with the, the position differently. So Mikel Arteta talking about why can't I make a substitution and change the goalkeeper in the last 15, 20 minutes of the game? I, I, I mean call me outdated and old-fashioned, I, I don't see how, that it, how that's going to affect the game. It's different if we're talking penalty shootouts. That's completely different. But And I get the logic behind the penalty shootouts. But in terms of the game, in the last 15, 20 minutes, you want to change it for a tactical perspective. If you've got two different goalkeepers, if you've got a goalkeeper that's a traditional goalkeeper, 
takes crosses, you know, commands his own yard box and is just okay with his feet. But you've got a goalkeeper on the bench who is outstanding with his feet and maybe he has a slight deficiency in the rest of them. Maybe, maybe. But we're talking about two goalkeepers who are both very, very good with their feet and are both modern day goalkeepers. I don't see the difference. Uh, let, uh, let's insist on the goalkeeper just a second because we have to obviously talk about the game, but because it was about you know a tale of two goalkeepers almost, uh, what did you make of uh, Robert Sanchez, Mark, and, and, and that mistake in his general performance? Because apparently there are even Chelsea fans now suggesting that he should be dropped and the, the, the substitute goalkeeper who I think they brought in from New England Revolution in the summer should be, should be coming in. So uh, what do you make of Robert Sanchez? Uh, I, re- I just saw a headline today, Michael, from The Athletic. That, uh, that Sanchez has very, very big shoes to fill and they're still very much empty. Something along those lines. I mean, it wasn't exactly right, but it was, it was like they're still empty. Um, and absolutely. And I look, I'll hold my hand up. I was very, very surprised when Chelsea bought him. I, I was. He is, his distribution at times can be outstanding, right? I've seen it and thought, wow. That is on another level, the way he gets side volley, his distribution was great. Um, but since he's been at Chelsea, he has really struggled. He's really struggled. I think he's been found out a little bit in his deficiency as a goalkeeper. Um, I think technically he is not up there with with with, with the likes of, say, Allison. Um, goes without saying. Um, so there's a lot of parts of his game that I feel that are nowhere near the level it needs to be to be certainly historically a Chelsea number one. We're talking about a different Chelsea, aren't we? We're talking about a Chelsea team that are mid-table. We're not talking about a team... I mean, their expectation now to finish the Champions League, but they're, but they're a Chelsea team that are mid-table. So uh, I, um, I, I'm, still, I'm still very much on the fence about whether or not he's the right goalkeeper for Chelsea Football Club. Right, we talked about the goalkeeping uh, situation, certainly at both clubs, actually, Michael. Let's talk about the game itself. What do you think of the game? Um, Chelsea 2-0 up and then lose the lead and end up drawing the match. A bit of disaster for Chelsea, or is it kind of what we're expecting from Chelsea these days? I think I think with where Chelsea are, they can still take a lot of encouragement from that. I, I think the way they're, they were, the midfield was really, had a really good hold of that game for long spells, certainly once they were ahead. And I think they, they were doing a lot of good things, bearing in mind some of that front line was a bit makeshift. They were sort of playing with no, properly recognized striker and these kind of false 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 number 10s almost and um i thought there's lots of movement and fluidity and they caused arsenal loads of problems i didn't really think arsenal were at it either um <clears throat> so given some of the issues you start reflecting on how soon it still early is it is in Maurizio pochettino's reign uh i thought this was really encouraging it was like a step on from some of the other progress they've made in recent weeks i i mean I think that Arsenal also deserve a lot of credit because of the way they um, they just kind of... I mean, they were they were given an opportunity, obviously. I thought Declan Rice's finish was still very good, by the way. And I, uh, the, the way they then grasped that, there's a real maturity and belief uh, in what they are doing. And I, I see a team there that is is bigger in stature and belief than it was last season, even though they had a phenomenal season last season. So I think you have to factor that in. Chelsea aren't there yet. They're a younger side, loads of changes, new manager. They've, they've got a lot of work to do. Um, but I think once everyone sort of sat down and, and thought about it, I, I know it's obviously no one ever wants to throw away a two-goal lead, but you can kind of go, okay, that, we'll, we'll take that. Let's 
they've got some really interesting games coming up as well. So they'll they'll be they'll be they'll be big tests. But I I just think it was a real mark of progress actually for Chelsea, and I think they can take a lot of positives from it. Best performance under Mauricio Pochettino. I mean the first. First half, um, they started so well and Arsenal didn't really know um, what to do. It reminded me a little bit of the North London derby, actually, where I just didn't think Arsenal were in the game at all. Um, and they were gifted a way back into it. On that, The Spanish TV commentators were saying, Chelsea are putting the game to sleep. And when they were 2-0 up, they, they were seeing it out. They looked comfortable. Arsenal didn't look like getting a way back in. And then Robert Sanchez hands them a hands them away back in. But I didn't think this was a particularly good performance from Arsenal at all. Mental resilience to get back into it, a brilliant finish from Declan Rice and an absolutely magnificent cross from Bukayo Saka for the, for the second goal because he was really quiet throughout the whole game. I mean, he barely touched the ball. Um, and that's what big players do. You know, if they're quiet in one game, they can be decisive with a moment of brilliance. And, 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 and he was. And Arsenal got something out of this game where they really probably shouldn't have and that is the mark of a team that can go on and and win stuff but yeah I think it's very positive for Chelsea it won't feel like it having been 2-0 up but we've seen that they are um they're things for them to uh, to build on and they're looking much much better now than they were at the start of the season and and they should go on and uh, and move well up the table and move into the top four as I predicted uh, brilliantly on the uh, preview part that they would finish top four it's definitely going to happen Probably not. Uh, but they do have a, a run of uh, uh, interesting fixtures coming up. The West London Derby and then Spurs and then Manchester City and then Newcastle. So there are some really big games for Chelsea coming up and maybe we'll have a clear idea of where they are with this development. And maybe they start getting some players back as well because they have had loads and loads of injuries out. So, in you know, in theory, overall, uh, a positive afternoon for Chelsea, even though the result, um, not the result, the way the result came about will make it feel that it won't. The Women's Super League was in action again this weekend with live coverage of every game and our women's football wrap show every Monday on Optus Sport. Let's see what Narelle Sindos and Michelle Escobar had to say about the last weekend before the international break. Thanks, Schwartzy. Well, yeah, Michelle, we saw Caitlin Ford celebrated her 100th appearance for Arsenal, which is a huge achievement. And while we do want to talk about the positives mostly, we can't help but maybe focus on some of the negatives that are coming out of Arsenal because they do provide us with a lot of storylines. And one of the players, I suppose, in question is Alessia Russo, and perhaps she's not living up to her potential there. Yeah, she's. I, I guess she's struggling a little bit to, to slot in. I mean, she did score a goal last week. We're probably being harsh, but there are high expectations of her. In this game, she had the second fewest touches of any visiting outfield player. And now that we've seen both Beth Mead and Viviana Miedemar come back from lengthy ACL injuries, you just wonder whether Alessia Russo is going to keep her spot in the starting 11 once those two players are back to full fitness. But at the same time, you'd be wondering, well, Jonas Eideville, he would have known that this was going to be the scenario. So how are they going to plan for this? And we've seen so many other WSL teams. They've got so much depth. So how are they going to handle this? Maybe Russo is feeling a little bit of the pressure and maybe the outside noise, because when they signed her, we know they've been wanting to get her for a while. I was expecting her to be on the score sheet almost every week. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think so. But it also got me thinking as well, with England, she was most effective during that Euros by coming off the bench, being that super sub. 
and at the World Cup, like she was great, but it wasn't, I felt like it wasn't at the same sort of heights that we've seen her when she was in that Lionesses team that won the Euros. There are high, expect, high expectations when it comes to Russo. And like you said, we'd be expecting her to be scoring goals, but maybe she just needs that time to be able to, to settle in properly and she could be firing away before we know it. Well, thankfully, Katie McCabe came to the rescue for Arsenal and their 2-1 win over Bristol. Both of those goals were absolute bangers. Um, but they did concede and it was pretty nervy for a while there. It was 1-0. And you just wonder, maybe the defence will let them down. They can't be doing this towards the pointy end of the season. Yeah, that's right. They Yeah, they really have to to get their ducks in order. I suppose we said the same thing last week. And then in this game, 10 of their 25 attempts were on target, but they couldn't capitalise on those chances. They also had 16 corners to none. So, I mean, don't want to be bogged down in the stats, but they're, they're very telling that they need to be more clinical. Well, and they also, in defence, they need to be better. Yeah, well, I don't know if we sound negative or what, guys, but <laughs> yeah, what do you think of Arsenal's issues at both ends, I guess, of the field? Yeah, it hasn't been a great start to the season for Arsenal. Uh, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, knocked out of the Champions League in the qualification, which is a real bad one for Arsenal, considering they got to the semi-final last season. Um, one, of the, one of the issues I see with Arsenal at the moment is that Alessia Russo, phenomenal player, really, really like watching her play. I don't think she's quite found her stride in this Arsenal side. And that's a combination of the rest of the team struggling as well. The managers made a lot of changes, changed the goalkeeper back and forth. Beth Mead and Vivian Miedemart still not at 100% fitness level, game level. They're going to be massive. So once they get fit, um, they're, going to, they're going to change a lot for, for Arsenal. It'll be very interesting to see um, where they fit in. Uh, Jonas Elderval has a big, big decisions to make. Russo, Mead, Miedemar, where does he fit all that incredible talent in the side? When you add to that, Ford, Little and McCabe going forward. I mean, it's a phenomenal squad when everyone's back to full match fitness. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of work still to be done for Arsenal um, to get back into their, their stride, what we saw them, um, how we saw them play last season, certainly the, the levels they reached. So watch this space and a lot of work still to be done. Let's move on to La Liga. And of course, uh, let's allow Phil to wax lyricals about Antoine Griezmann again. Is there anyone better at the moment in European football at the moment, uh, Phil? Um, let, me, let me ask you first, Mark. Did you do your homework this weekend? I did. I watched it. Did, no, did, no, but did you watch Girona? Always watch Girona. Did you watch Girona? Um, Your homework is to watch Girona every That's single week. That's the one thing I didn't watch. Uh, I watched Atletico Madrid. Hashtag I watched always watch Girona, man. I'm, I, I I'm trying to get the alone. movement going. Sorry. Girona, were, they were 2-0 down at home to Almeria. They came back and they won 5-2. They're second. They're level on points with leaders Real Madrid. It's an extraordinary story. It's still going. I've been telling, I've literally been telling you and the listeners for yes. weeks now, Always watch Girona. They score lots of goals. They concede. They're very exciting. So always watch them. Do I'm I get half a mark? Hat trick for him. Hang on. Do I get a half a mark? Just What's quickly. That? I looked at the scores and saw Girona were 2-0 down. And then went, Phil is on. He's like, he's having one. Phil, watch, always watch Girona. What am I going to watch them? They're 2-0 down at half time. Oh, sorry, at home. I'm not going to watch this. That's when you should put it on because you know, know they're going to come back. That's when you should put it on. They've, they've done it before this season as well. So anyway, um, on, to, uh, on to Antoine Griezmann, yeah, who scored uh, a hat-trick in Atletico Madrid's 3-0 win at Celta Vigo. Is he the best player in Europe at the moment? I don't know. Um, 
but he is possibly the player that most managers would want in their team more than anyone else. So let me explain myself. I think he is the biggest team playing superstar that exists at the moment. And maybe, maybe we've ever had, uh, you look at his heat maps, you look at his touches maps from games, he's everywhere. And I mentioned this last week or a few weeks ago when we were talking about him, I'll mention him again. The work rate for a monumental superstar like Antoine Griezmann, I think it's unparalleled. I don't think we've seen anyone like this. He doesn't do anything that's necessarily too eye-catching. So he's not necessarily about the, the dribbles, the flicks, the tricks. He's extremely efficient. Everything that he does is done, it's because it's needed. He's not a showy player, but he's got an extraordinary uh, vision. He's got an extraordinary intelligence. He reads the game so well. Uh, he can score goals. He can make passes. He tracks back and makes tackles. He is the complete player. So when I say he's the player that most coaches around the world would want to have in his in their team, I think it's because of that. He can genuinely do everything. And this wasn't it wasn't necessarily his best performance, wasn't necessarily Atletico Madrid's best performance, but he scored a penalty. He scored a, uh, the second goal is perhaps a, a little bit fortuitous and the, the, the third is a, a, a really good finish. But did, did he mean the second goal? The one? second goal, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Second goal, if you haven't seen it, he was bursting through on goal. Um, he had someone in the middle, I think it's Alvaro Morata. He decides to try and pass it to Alvaro Morata, we think, with his right foot. He slips. And the ball ends up in the back of the net. So I think he probably didn't mean it. But listen, really you make your own luck in this world. It's really Mark. hard to tell whether he means it, whether he slips. It's so hard. I've seen it so many times. I'm trying to work it out desperately. And I also want to mention the first goal. My God, Celta Vigo's goalkeeper, Ivan Villa. Oh, my God. Like, I mean, it's yeah. just one of those ones. The simplest, the simplest of, of, of crosses. And he drops it and then gives away a penalty and gets sent off. So... That, yeah. I, I think that's really yeah. harsh. I don't think he should have been sent off. Well, it was a pretty clear goal-scoring opportunity. It was an open goal. But he's double jeopardy, right? He but he's double jeopardy, down, so. right? So he's been, he's been, it's a penalty plus being a red card. I mean, I, I don't think, yes, he was late. Yes, it was a penalty, 100%. But I don't think it's a red card. Michael, you're, you're nodding your head. No, double jeopardy was what, exactly what I was thinking. I think uh, it's a bit different if you're an outfield player, I think, and you don't play the ball. But I think for a goalkeeper, what what's he supposed to do there? I think um, it, the penalty is there for the, for the for the foul. I don't I don't think it should have been red. So. Um, Fair, enough. Also, Fair enough. Also, anyway, uh, Vicente Guaita coming on as well to replace uh, VR, former Crystal Palace goalkeeper, and uh, uh, actually doing doing all right. Didn't save the penalty, but uh, there's uh, there's question marks now whether or not Rafa Benitez is going to have him as the the goalkeeper for uh, Celta. Quick word on Rafa: he's under massive pressure as manager of uh, Celta Vigo. They brought him in, gave him a three year contract. Um, it's not gone according to plan. It's their centenary year. He was supposed to lead them to glory, uh, and they're uh, flirting with the re with relegation. So big pressure. On, on Rafa Benitez. Just quickly, what's the overall perception of Rafa Benitez in Spain? Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of respect for what he achieved a while ago. I think his tenure at Real Madrid harmed his um, his view amongst uh, a lot of uh, people. Basically, in Spain, half the people support Real Madrid and half the people support Barcelona. It's, it, it's more or less like that. And when you go to Real Madrid and you are unsuccessful in quite spectacular fashion, like Rafa Benitez, and you fall out with players and you tell Luka Modric, don't play that pass with the outside of the boot, um, people are going to question you. And I think he's uh, he's been questioned. But there is still you know, respect, genuine respect for what he achieved with Valencia. Remember, he won the league 
with Valencia. He won the UEFA Cup with Valencia and the Champions League with Liverpool. That is not forgotten, but more recently, his um, his um, more recent past uh, is uh, is less glorious, and I think people are beginning to question uh, question him. So respect for what he's done in the past, but the present isn't particularly uh, isn't particularly good. I want to ask you quickly one more thing about Griezmann. Diego Simeone said after the game that he has to protect him, has to take care of yeah. him. Um, is it a case of, is it an age thing? Is it how good he's playing at the moment? Or is it finally Diego Simeone really, really like buying into him? Because I, I don't know, I always felt there was a love-hate relationship. He wasn't quite no. in the good books. What no. is it? No, he's always loved him. He's always loved him. He's always loved him because he's a, he's that kind of hardworking player. He's a really Simeone player. He's all about the team. He's not about the individual. And he and he has and he has really loved him always. I think. Um, I think he's got to protect him because he's thirty two. Um, and there's just a temptation to play him every week because uh, there's no one that can come into the team and do what Antoine Griezmann does. So, uh, when you've got a player like that, you want to play him every week, but you can't. Because you've got La Liga, you've got the Champions League, you've got the Copa del Rey, um, and there is a Euros coming up where he will be instrumental for France as well. Last season, you remember, uh, first couple of months, the club were protecting him um, themselves by him having this clause uh, from uh, from Barcelona where he couldn't play uh, more than a certain amount of minutes. So he was coming on in the 62nd minute uh, of every game for the first uh, two or three months of the season. So that actually protected him and allowed him to to be really good towards the back end of the uh, of the season because he uh, he hadn't played too many minutes to begin with but yeah they, they I think they do have to protect uh, any player who's 32 and who is going to play a lot of minutes you have to know when to rest him but at the moment it's really really difficult to rest Antoine Griezmann because of what he's doing their partnership with Alvaro Morata seems to be flourishing as well so um, yeah long, long may he play as many minutes as uh, Simeone feels uh, necessary because it's a great value for, uh, for Optus Sport viewers to enjoy one of the world's best players and the next big game was Sergio Ramos against Real Madrid. I mean, Seville against Real Madrid. I mean, how good was Sergio Ramos, Michael? I mean, he's like it was a, almost like a vintage performance, wasn't it? Exactly. I, I mean, the, the, clearly the guy's a legend at Real, so it's um, you just want to protect everything. Which, which you know, in fairness, I mean, Sergio Ramos strikes me as someone who who can get quite wrapped up in things and uh, you know get a bit overexcited. So, like you say, that kind of uh, that balance almost says as, says as much about how uh, how Real is sort of uh, uh, completely entwined in his being, I suppose, and, and everything he's been. Uh, and I, I I imagine I don't want to speak for him, but I can just envisage him wanting to show off the absolute best of himself in that game. Uh, just what an opportunity to do it. Uh, Sevilla clearly had a difficult start to the season and been a bit all over the place from what I've seen. Phil will obviously seen a lot more, but. Um, yeah, I, I think he'll have just wanted to show the very best of himself and he can't really lose in that situation, providing he, he does it. And that, that showed great discipline and and also those elements that you love to see from Sergio Ramos as well. It was a very Sergio Ramos performance, it has to be said. I mean, it had it had everything, goal line clearances, dramatic uh, late headers. Um, and... It, it was billed, as you said, a severe uh, Sergio Ramos against against Real Madrid. It's hard to overstate the figure of Sergio Ramos here in Spain. He has almost been like a like a cartoon character when he was at Real Madrid. He was this sort of superhero central defender, throwing himself on the line, scoring these late goals, bare chested tattoos, rolling sleeves up. Sergio Ramos comes to save the day, and he left in quite painful circumstances. And uh, he he hadn't played against Real Madrid for I think it was eighteen years, so he. 
this game meant a lot to him, uh, I think. And, and, you, and you could see that. And after maybe a slightly nervy first 10 minutes, he was actually really, really good. It's his best performance for a, a long time. And I think there's also in the back of his mind, he wants to get back into the Spain team as well uh, with the Euros coming up. He's got the uh, uh, all-time caps record in his sights and he thought he was out of the Spain national team set up and he might be, he might be back in if he keeps playing like this because it, it was a really Sergio Ramos performance. Sevilla didn't win the game, but nor did they lose it. And I think a 1-1 result is uh, pretty good for Sevilla. Not so for Real Madrid, who were absolutely furious with the uh, referee stopping a, a counter-attack, which ended up in a Jude Bellingham goal. Had to mention Jude Bellingham. We're uh, you know, a good way into the podcast and we hadn't talked about him. So I had to mention Jude Bellingham as well. He scored a brilliant goal, but it was, it was ruled out um, by, the, uh, by the referee who had stopped the move because one of the Sevilla players was down injured and you really could have let it continue and maybe then the Sevilla player could have got the treatment he needed. But anyway, uh, Real Madrid not happy about that. And uh, when, they're, when they drop points, they often aren't happy with the referee. So let, let's put it like that. So uh, Let's move on to Barcelona. And the superstar kid, superstar factory continues to move on and produce unbelievable players. Uh, Phil, Talk about this one. They needed someone to come on late. 17-year-old. I'll let you pronounce his name because I'm struggling. Mark Guiu. Um, yeah, I mean, there is, uh, there is actually a factory just on the outskirts of uh, Barcelona where they make these talented wonder kids. Uh, you can go there. You can do a tour. There's a little production line. They put the limbs together. They pop the head order. They put them straight into the uh, dressing room for, for the scrutiny of the world. Um, Obviously not, but they do have La Masia, which is the world-renowned youth academy, which has been producing world-class players for uh, for some time. I don't know if Mark Yu is going to go on and be a world-class player uh, because he's only 17. The thing is with these players that have made the jump, because they're, it's so eye-catching because they're so young. Mark Yu was 17 years and 291 days old when he came off yesterday and scored. After 33 seconds of his debut. It was the only goal of the game. He scores the winner against Athletic Club and, and everybody's going crazy. He's played once for Barcelona's B team. He's playing for their under-19s at the moment and it's the same jump that Lamine Yamal has made, uh, that Ansu Fati made, that Gavi made as well. These are players that have gone from the under-19s straight to the first team and it is a massive, massive jump. The under-19s playing regionalised youth divisions and then to go from that to the first team, to playing in the Champions League, to playing in La Liga. It's, it's, a, it's an enormous jump. So I don't know if Mark Yu is going to go on and, and be a Gavi or be a Lamine Yama or Ansu Fati. It's, it's difficult to know, but he took his goal very, very well yesterday. There was wonderful scenes of his mum absolutely crying her eyes out in the, uh, in the stands uh, after him scoring. It's an incredible story. I mean, he's the quickest player to score on his debut, 33 seconds. Uh, and like I said, let's see if he... Um, if he goes on to become a, a superstar, I don't. We shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. And he was only in the team, you know, only in the squad because Robert Lewandowski is out injured, and they didn't really have any other options. The squad had been decimated by injuries. You know, um, no Lewandowski, no Rafinha, no Pedri, no De Jong. Uh, they were lacking in options. So when you're lacking in options, and this is something that Javi has done a lot, you go to the youth academy and you bring in youth players, and he has done that to his credit. Um, Throughout his tenure, someone who knows La Masia, who came through La Masia, who trusts La Masia, and got him out of a hole last night against the Athletic Club because uh, they hadn't played particularly well. Um, and uh, Mark Yu scoring the only goal of the game. 
Michael, 33 seconds on the pitch, second touch, because he takes the first touch to set himself up and then places it past the keeper, uh, Simone, uh, Simon, Uno Simon. Um, can you remember a better debut? Because imagine his <laughs> stories. If nothing ever comes of his career, imagine the stories he's going to be telling in the pub one day when he's like 45, 50 years old. 33-second debut, two touches, balls in the back of the net for Barcelona. We win a game. I mean, he's he's got a whole career ahead of him now of being able to sit down with people and going, oh, that took you 33 seconds. So I'll tell you what I did in 33 seconds. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I think, um, it, it, yeah, it, it was a it was a brilliantly taken goal as well. Um, and um, you know, it was, it was a bit of a shame for Unai Simon because he'd actually I thought he made some really good saves over the course yes. of that game, and it just kind of slipped through him a little bit. But um, I suppose when you when you come in as a youngster into into Barcelona, you, you know you're surrounded by such good players that you do have that kind of freedom to make a real impact uh, at, 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 at such a high level. And then that must open so much in terms of what you can then go on to do. But it doesn't in any way guarantee that you're going to be able to do it. So I, I, that's like when we, you know, Ansu Fati is obviously had has done that, and now he's trying to rebuild something at Brighton. So it's it. Um, you know, it's a it's a great moment, and it's something to really build off. But you know, it's obviously just a just a start. It is really interesting with Barcelona, as you were saying, Phil. That Barca have got so much, uh, so many players to come back, and so much that they can kind of um, uh, improve in terms of getting those players back and finding some momentum. With Real, it, it feels like it's a bit stuttery and it's not quite clicking yet, and you're not quite sure if they're going to have that same ability to go through the gears or or whether you know they've got as much as high a ceiling maybe as Barcelona have this year it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out uh, I was just um, trying to remember and I, I don't know about the best uh, best debuts but I think Jonathan Woodgate did a, a reverse <laughs> Mark Gu on his debut for Real Madrid uh, where he, he scored an own goal and got sent off on, on his yeah, debut he scored so, as that, well, that, didn't quite so he scored an own goal then he scored yeah. up the other end of the pitch so he scored yeah. twice on the day, an own goal, scored, and then got yeah. a red card. Um, guys, all right, I'm going to put you in the spot. I mean, Phil, you were talking about Real Madrid. It's their title. They're going to win the league. There's no one else really going to be anywhere near them. What are you saying now? I'm saying, Mark, that they are currently top of the table at the moment. So, uh, you know, um, they're, 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 they are leading. But it's going to be very interesting next week because we've got El Clasico next week. Yeah. Barcelona against Real Madrid, biggest before game in world that, football. Before that, we get to that, though, who's going to win the title? Come on, don't, don't dance around it. Who's going to win? You said Real Madrid at the beginning no, of the but season. I was, I was leading up to that. Okay. I was leading up to that because the Clasico goes 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 often goes a long way to to deciding the league title in La Liga because these other teams essentially drop you know very few points in other games. Barcelona haven't lost yet this season; they're the only team that hasn't lost uh, in La Liga. So uh, I think we'll get a better idea after after next week's El Clasico. Can I? Can I? I'm sticking with Real Madrid. I predicted at the start okay. of the season. I'll stick with them now. They're currently top, but you know the Clasico is going to be massive next next week. Michael. Uh, I think it'll be a draw at the weekend and then Jerome will win every game for the rest of the season. <laughs> that would be amazing. If that All happens, wow. I don't know what I'll do on the podcast, but I'll do something special if that happens. Let's talk about, you, you mentioned El Clasico. You and I are going to have a bit of a trip coming up. We start on, well, I arrive in Barcelona on the Friday. We're going to go to El Clasico. Then we're going to the Manchester Derby the next day. I mean, that's just going to be incredible, isn't it? 
it's our magical weekend away, Mark. You know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be really special. I mean, two two of the biggest fixtures in world football, back to back, Clasico, and then Manchester derby at Old Trafford. I'm very excited because I've never been to Old Trafford, been to the Etihad, never been to Old Trafford, so it's going to be quite an experience uh, on that level, and it's going to be really interesting to compare as well, going from one game one day to the other game the other, um, compare and contrast the experiences of being at these two uh, massive, massive uh, derbies, massive uh, rivalries. So, yeah, really looking forward to it. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll produce some interesting content for Optus Sport uh, along the way. Yes, yeah, it's less, the derbies are less than 24 hours apart from each other. And it's obviously all on Optus Sport. We're doing it for Optus Sport. Um, Michael, what do you reckon? Like, I mean, it's pretty cool, right? Or, or would you be just going, oh, my God, is that like, can you do it in less than 24 hours and that's going to be exhausting? Oh, no, it's a, no, it's definitely, well, it will be ex- exhausting, but that's just the price of, of, of magic times, isn't it? It's going to be fun. I mean, but Barcelona is a brilliant city, first and foremost. Uh, I, I have been to the new Camp before. Uh, obviously, that's sort of a, a heap, heap of rubble at the moment. So it'll be quite interesting, to be honest, to experience El Clasico at the Olympic Stadium and, and how that works, because it's probably a little... A little bit alien, I suppose, for everyone. So um, that will be, uh, but yeah, it's a wonderful city as well, and and you'll you'll have lots of fun, I'm sure. Uh, Old Trafford is, I mean, it, it ranked higher than I was expecting on the old stadium rankings to bring us <laughs> to bring us all full circle. And, and you know, there's there are some tired edges to Old Trafford now. I think it suffered a, a, a distinct lack of investment um, in in recent, say, the last decade or so, but. It is a, a proper place to go. It's a, a magnificent place to go and watch football. It just, I mean, you'll have played there, Mark, obviously, and you know all about it, but the, the way that it's its all up there looking down on you and um, and there, there's so much to see around the stadium as well. I mean, we've been talking about Bobby Charlton, obviously. There's there's, there's so many tributes around, around the stadium too. So, yeah, Phil, you're in for an absolute treat and then you get to watch two fantastic games of football as well. It's going to be, uh, oh, I'm jealous. Let's be honest. <laughs> Enjoy it. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. And of course, you'll be able to catch up on all all of our um, our adventures on Optus Sport and all social uh, platforms, of course, throughout the, the weekend. Um, and uh, I'm sure Phil and I will find, our, find a way to entertain ourselves and have a wonderful time. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, guys, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, thanks a lot, Phil, as always, for joining us. See you next week, amigo. Absolutely. And Michael, thank you very much for your debut on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Absolutely enjoyed having you on it. It's been a pleasure, gents. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Drop the skincare regime, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll DM you, Phil. Don't worry. Cool. I think there's a bit of jealousy going on there from Phil. I mean, Phil is always a very well-manicured man. You can see. I mean, (laughs) last week, I thought he was outstanding. He looked very crisp, very well-manicured. This week, he's a a little bit jaded i don't know maybe you just got straight out of bed i don't know you haven't done your hair this week i'm not sure but still your beard is looking immaculate phil that's where i always look at and go your beard is right up there right i'll up make there sure i'm in good shape when, when i meet you next week mark i can't wait you're not getting much else from me mate this is me i don't change very much from this um anyway reminder that every game of the premier league la liga and the women's super league are all live and exclusive on optus sport thanks for your company on the optus sport football podcast see you next time Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.